Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders Podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Garo. He's our uh, third returning guest on the show, and we're so happy to have him back. Uh, and he's here to answer one question. How was WWDC this year? Welcome to the show, Garo. Thanks, Garrick. Thank you. How are you doing? Doing great. What are you up to? Well, I'm writing as much Swift as possible. Nice. Man, uh, so yesterday my fiance and I went to the beach and we could see like all that smoke coming from the north. I mean, it was so crazy. It was like I was on Mars. It was like an apocalypse or something. Um, I don't know. Did you, did you see that? Absolutely. So you don't get too many chances in L.A. to stare at a bright red like sun at high noon. Yeah, uh, it was trippy. It was, it was surreal. Absolutely. So when I first heard about this fire, it was 5,500 acres. And then last night when we um, checked into the facts, again, it went to 20,000 acres. And wow. it was only like 15% contained. But then I woke up this morning and the sky was blue. So yeah, yeah. so thoughts go out to all the people over there. I have some, some friends and family that actually like live in that area. Yeah. People had to get evacuated and stuff. It's crazy. But that's what, we, um, that's what we risk by living in beautiful, sunny Southern California, right? Yeah, for sure. Growing up, actually, there was a brush fire back in the day that reached like 10 feet from, you know, my, my house where I, you know, where I grew up and, uh, you know, it was contained, but it was, it was like quite a scare. Did you have to evacuate? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh wow. What's that like? It's, you know, I kind of like you might imagine like pretty frenzied grabbing like maybe one or two little things that you think might be important. Um, you know, documents, passports, that kind of stuff. Right. And then maybe some photographs, if I remember. Uh, I was pretty young, actually, maybe 10 or 11 years old. Um, but I remember, yeah, my mom, my dad really doing the scramble, and we could see the fire coming up. And we didn't know how close it reached until we came back. And the, basically the side of the hill was basically burned up to... I, I just want to say it was like to the property line. I, I, wow. It, you know, from what I remember. And for about two years... You know, the hill was kind of just in that process of, you know, just just uh, regenerating itself. And wow. it, it came back. It's green now. So it was a long time ago. Wow. Scary yeah. little reminder. But yeah, yeah I, I was thinking about that last night, too, with our friends over dinner. Like, what do you take in that moment? I don't know. Yeah. Now, maybe my laptop. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, oh, that's everything's on there. I'm good. <laughs> oh, man. So you said that you're writing as much Swift as possible. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear that. How are you liking that? I liking love Swift, Swift so much. Me yeah. too. It's, yeah, Swift 2, Swift 3. It's, it's, um, it's a little bumpy, but, but we like that. Um, relearning something. It was like, what, what version of, of uh, the you know, debug description protocol am I on? You know, it's like based on the code you're on, trying to use code between like old playgrounds and new playgrounds. and. Um, it's definitely, it's definitely an evolving thing, and, and I look forward to the source stability of Swift 3. So that's like, you know, the one thing about WWC for me is that, is that sense of, okay, you know, we've been sort of in motion with Swift since the very beginning. And with, you know, source stability 
is such a huge benefit. It's almost, you know, it's like, it's like essential. It's like the, the one thing that we're missing. Um, and I know they kind of bumped the uh, binary interface another year, but um, source stability is, is, is critical now. So I'm so happy that it's here or I are almost here because there's still changes. You probably looked at Swift evolution and the new proposals that are being accepted. And I think there's like two more, three more days to submit changes, uh, breaking changes to Swift three, and then they'll be implemented through the rest of the summer until the fall. So, um, anyone writing Swift three, expect a few more changes to come, but I think, you know, it's, it's good where. We're coming out of the woods, I think, and I'm really excited about it. So what does that really mean? Like, what is the significance? I hear that word source compatibility, and I think I understand what it means. But what exactly does that mean? Well, essentially, when you get a new version of Swift or a new Xcode and your old Swift needs to compile, it's going to be incompatible with the now current version of Swift. So you have to actually change your, your code in order for it to even compile, essentially. Um, so they obviously there's the migrator for the big jumps, but some of the smaller point releases, the migrator may not work if you've already run it. And so there's various, um, you know, you may or may not get uh, the same thing you had before to compile with just running the migrator. So you might also need to look at warnings and some new errors and figure out, you know, what is the new access control for private or um, you know, file in, private or something like that. Yeah, like the file private thing is new, but I don't think it's implemented yet. Uh, don't quote me on that. I think there was debate on that. On that. that. Yeah. I think there was debate on that one. Yeah, but I expect to see that by the um, by the fall. Um, some... So basically, it sounds like with source compatibility, which is the goal of Swift three, or did right. they actually push that? Yeah. No. Or, the source compatibility is the Swift three goal. They're saying let's break as much as we can. All now, it's like, you know, basically just go through this migration of source code one more time. And then going forward, what we should see, I think, are additions to the language that won't break your existing code. And that really opens the door for Swift adoption for larger code bases. So if you have, um, you know, if you're, if you're planning to write tens of thousands of lines of code over a period of months, you don't want to have to then go back and have to update all of that just to get into you know, the latest version of Swift. So first thing is for Swift 2.2 people, the inclusion of Swift 2.3 uh, is a really great thing because you don't have to actually migrate all of the code you wrote last year to continue shipping to the App Store. And that's very, you know, probably a really big deal for, again, large code bases, large companies with big teams, and they may not have the liberty to just rewrite all of their code or at least have to update everything. Um, for Swift 3, if you have a manageable code base or, or it's large and you have some time, you can go ahead and migrate everything. And hopefully when Swift 4 is released, you end up with a much easier um, upgrade path. Um, a okay, few so warnings maybe this is deprecated, use this instead, but it's still there for a while and it's gonna be a lot more manageable to move forward. So it kind of sounds like Swift 3 is almost like a real Swift 1 like release, whereas like before it was kind of like beta Swift almost. Yeah, absolutely. You could think of it that way. Swift 1 was the alpha. Swift 2 was the beta. 
Swift 3 is really the the public, you know, the 1.0 effectively um, stable um, version of Swift. And I think there's two things you could look at. People that did Swift 1 to Swift 2 to Swift 3 have the benefit of that entire evolution and understanding why certain things were done, and that's always really important. But people that get into it now may have the alternate benefit of learning one thing one time and not having to relearn something that you just learned. Like break old habits even. Yeah, even if they're fairly new, but you know with code, like we we repeat our patterns. Right. And we also draw up, you know, we have like a little API document in our head, and it's really hard when that changes because you're like, oh wait, what was string by appending format is now appending or or append based on, you know, so there's all that um, all that mapping of these APIs in our minds, everything we learn, especially if it goes back to Objective-C. Now they did something really smart, which was when they introduced Swift, the Objective-C APIs were exactly the same. So you had one year or two years where you could use the Objective-C APIs, or essentially Cocoa APIs, as they were, as they always had been, with small changes. And then when you kind of got used to Swift and you realize, well, these these Cocoa APIs don't feel very Swifty, uh, then they took the opportunity to do the grand renaming, which I love what they call that. It's like, okay, everything's going to change one time. Here are the new naming conventions. And now we're going to rename those old APIs. So now you're familiar with Swift, you feel like, okay, I can rename the APIs. But if you had to learn the new language and the new APIs, I feel like it would have been a lot more difficult for Apple to, you know, and the Apple community to make that transition to Swift 3. So, you know, or, or I should say to Swift if they had, if they had renamed everything up front. So this is, this is, has been a really good, I think a really successful strategy. Um, I think it's really well executed and it's, it, yeah, thumbs up. I'm really excited about the grand renaming and like the new, more Swifty, you know, style and especially uh, the APIs. I mean, we knew going into DubDub about all of Swift 3 because it's all open, right? But there were some uh, things we didn't know, like the rename, renaming of the APIs. And I'd like to get into that with you a little later. Sure. But before we do that, I want to back up and go to the beginning and ask you the question, how was WWDC yeah. this year? We're talking about WWDC 16. So yeah. it was a great WWDC. I feel like this was a WWDC um, sort of looking forward. Um, obviously, a lot of new technologies, new APIs, uh, changes, additions, the four platforms, You know, even renaming Mac OS. Um, or I should say OS 10 to Mac OS and um, so much about it was sort of this, this transformative thing of like, we're moving forward and things are going to be different. Um, and so, you know, just in contrast with past WWCs, it's interesting is like, here's some new things we're doing, but things kind of fit like every year, you know, year over year, it felt like, okay, we're getting more of the same. Of course, it's new and it's different. Um, and that was great. And so iOS evolved and the just platforms give, evolved. Just to give us a little context. Um, so you've been to, uh, we talked earlier, it was uh, 2010, 11, 13, and 16 now, correct? Yeah. Okay, sorry, continue. 
So yeah, I mean, there's there was product launches in the in the old ones. Now it's like really focused on the technology, the software, I should say, and and uh, and I think that's really important because as a developers conference, as developers, we care about the software. Um, you know, Apple certainly could have used the media attention to announce products, but you know, I, I like that they stopped doing that because it really sort of shines a light on the software and developers and the ecosystem. Um, this is kind of what we deal with more than the hardware directly is the code we're writing, the APIs we're using, and kind of how we think about the work that we do. That's really interesting because if you remember, there was a section, I can't remember if it was at the very beginning of the keynote or if it was more towards the end where, before they announced Swift Playgrounds, but there was the big word developer in mm. orange. And last year after Dub Dub, I wrote an article about um, Apple education as it relates to development and Swift and becoming an iOS developer and how they need to bring more light to that. Like, how mm -hmm. do you learn to be an iOS developer? And I feel like they doubled down or they, they made good on, on that because I really feel like they're starting to sell the idea even more so than before as an Apple developer. Like, what it means from, from education to shipping and getting paid as an Apple developer. Mm -hmm. And sense. so it sounds like your perspective uh, going back to 2010 all the way to now um, is sort of in line with that. Like they're focused more on what it means to be a developer and how we can make that better. Yeah. And it's, it works out well for them also because they have more time to build the new OS with the new device. And that takes a long time. So they can actually continue perfecting the, I mean, I, I doubt they're really changing the new iPhone that much, but, but the idea is like they're integrated hardware and software and Apple can actually work on the new iPhone right up to its announcement, which is going to be in the fall, which is where the software matures. So the timing wise, it actually is a better trajectory for, you know, how, how you handle, um, you know, parallel development of the hardware and the software. Um, of course, I'm not privy to any, uh, the actual details, but I imagine it, it works out much better uh, if there has to be like a small tweak to some some part of the new phone's uh, chipset and announcing it at WWDC really does limit them in some ways. That's interesting. I haven't thought about that. So what's your feeling like? Uh, let's say they announce whatever's new at DubDub and then, or maybe they're already starting to work on iOS 11, but let's say they start like right after DubDub 16 they're now working on ios 11 and then i guess like are they developing for the newest released iphone or do you think they have information on I mean, there's got to be some like crosstalk well like they don't they don't know what it looks like but maybe they know like new hardware possibly like technologies to take advantage like for instance 3d touch and force touch and mm -hmm. all that i wonder how yeah. that works yeah i don't know really uh, total speculation but I, but i i do think I do think they work on things up to pretty close to when they're released. So clearly, like, they're still working on iOS 10. They're going to be working on it all summer, as we are working on our apps and maybe shipping a new app for iOS 10 or a new, you know, maybe an extension for iMessage or something like that. Um, that's all happening. I don't, I doubt there really, there's a lot of movement on iOS 11 until the fall. Okay. Where, that's my guess, but again, I, I I don't know. But judging from the rate of releases of the betas and and you know, 
what has to go into that and the focus of these teams, um, I'd be surprised if there's another team just going off and working on iOS 11. Of course, they probably know generally like kind of the roadmap, what it's going to look like and what they want to do in iOS 11. Um, but right now, I, I imagine that they're very focused on iOS 10 um, and the other platforms, of course. So in, let's say, a sentence or a word, hmm. just how was it this year? Especially, yeah. you know, given like the... So fresh. Your... I guess fresh. I want to say fresh. It, it was... I like it was that. different than before. It was new. Um, I actually had a, a neat experience of being there with people that were there for the first time. And that was really interesting because a lot of the, oh, by the way, we used to have to cram into the hallways and wait <laughs> six hours and all that kind of thing. Nice. Was just like, oh, cool. I guess we were waiting outside to get into the Bill Graham. But just, I guess it's also good yeah, talking about the keynote that the Bill Graham Auditorium is such a huge uh, win for WWDC because awesome. everybody goes in the entire conference, <clears throat> excuse me, plus the uh, all the media, and shares this auditorium that can fit seven thousand people for this conference that can fit five thousand people. And the way it was didn't have that feeling because it was too many people, and some people had to even people who paid for the conference would have to go into the overflows and watch videos. So. You better get there at five or six in the morning if you expect to be in the big room and that kind of thing. And that's all kind of not there. So interesting. Next year, you're going to WWDC. Do you go at five in the morning? Honestly, I would say don't do it because you're going to be in line for like, you know, five, six hours. I mean, actually, that could be a lot of fun, but you don't need to do that to get a seat, to get a good seat because there are no bad seats in, uh, in uh, Bill Graham. So assuming it's at Bill Graham next year, which it sounds like it probably will be because, you know, it was a success and it fits yeah. more people. And I heard it's like a better view, too, because it's like a stadium type seating, maybe. Yeah, it's it, exactly. So so everyone can. So it's not a conference room. It's you don't a, like look over people's heads and shoulders. So the first time I went to Bill Graham, I saw James Brown in concert. Wow. There's no bad seats at Bill Graham. Nice. <laughs> <clears throat> OK, so if anyone's going next year. No need to wake up early and wait in line unless you want to. I've heard waiting in line is fun. It is fun. So I would do it if you've never done it before. But you don't. I guess the the nice thing is if you get there at six or seven thirty, it's not that different. Um, do, you, do you have any interesting um, waiting in line stories from years past? Um, I mean, it's just a fun. It's just like a good experience. It's there's this kind of like excitement. Obviously, everyone's talking about what they have sort of leading in. Obviously, there's a lot of rumors by the time you're standing in line. Uh, year over year, it seems like we've known more and more of what's coming. Um, right. Certain things, obviously, like Swift itself was a was an amazing secret, um, like maybe the best kept secret yet from Isn't, Apple. Yeah, incredible. Uh, but more so, I think people have a sense of what they hope to see and what they think they know they're going to see. and that all kind of comes together and, and everyone's just talking about things. But then there's also this element of, you know, standing on your feet for several hours straight. Um, you, you know, people get a little bit restless. And so it's always fun to talk about, you know, just just how your feet hurt or whatever. I mean, I don't know. It's just it's just a cool thing. Everyone shares that experience. And it's it's you wouldn't necessarily want to stand in line for four hours for anything. But I guess uh, 
WWC keynote is one of the things that it's worth standing for. I heard they bring like coffee or something like Apple. Yeah, there's around coffee. With a little cart or something. Yeah, they. they I don't. Like so while I you're waiting actually, in line or something. Yeah, I didn't experience that this year, but I think what it was was that there was an area where you could get coffee um, that you could kind of someone could walk there and walk maybe get back in line or something. Or people are always really nice about holding your place if you need to go and come back or something like that. So it's it's a very um, it's a great community experience like you don't there's a community everyone's aware of it it's it's on twitter it's on the blogs it's you know it's at these smaller conferences but at wwdc you really see it as a, just an incredible display it's like all of it it feels like it's all of it um you know seven thousand people coming from all every corner of the of the globe and and getting together and so it's interesting to see people that actually only see each other once a year at wwdc um, that kind of thing is, is really cool, but also just meeting people from many, many different countries. Uh, it, it genuinely, the, if you're from California at WWC in California, you're a minority. Oh, wow. Right. So that's, that's really interesting. So did you stand in line early this year? I did. Nice. Um, I We're... had, I had the coffee duty. So, so <laughs> I basically got Starbucks and breakfast and some colleagues from work uh, were in line. And so they got there a little earlier and I got to kind of cut, uh, but, <laughs> but I earned it with, um, you know, with coffee and, and sandwiches. Um, but I think I was there by like six, so it was still pretty early, um, maybe 6.30 or something like that. I don't recall exactly, but I think that the line, actually there were people in line the night before because I was there at the very end um, to check in the night before the keynote, so Sunday night. Like um, you get your badge and like a gift bag or something, right? Yeah, they give you the jackets. You know, they, they kind of make these really nice jackets. Um, That's awesome. You get your badge, which is basically like you know, worth its – it's actually more valuable than gold by weight, right? Because you can't replace that thing. Wow. Um, and it's not very heavy, so definitely more <laughs> than gold by weight. That's so funny. Yeah, so I actually, um, you know, I flew there by myself. I got I got a BART, actually. There's a lot of people Uber now, but I, I kind of miss BART because I lived in the Bay Area for so long. So I actually took the BART all the way to, you know, right in front of the auditorium. I forget the, the you know, the station, but basically um, walked quickly and got to the, to the check-in, like, as they were closing. So um, I was basically the last person to check in on Sunday. If, wow. If, you know. Um, which worked out well, and then I Ubered Wait, so, to the hotel from there. So if you if they closed and you didn't check in, then what would you have to do? Well, I would have just checked in the morning. Okay. But it was nice to get your badge in advance and you go straight in line. Okay. And then the check-in line on Monday morning was pretty long, so that there's one less line I had to just kind of wait, but it didn't nice. matter because everyone's waiting anyway. But what was interesting is that night, there were people already camped out for to be the first in line. Wow. Um, so they had a long night also, but... Um, yeah, I don't I get, think there were that many. Maybe maybe like ten people at that point, and then I'm sure by six a.m. it was it was several hundred people. I guess that could be fun, like camping out and being first in line. But what does that really give you that you get to choose your seat? But like, where? I mean, does it really matter where you sit? I guess unless you want to sit really close to like executives or something. But like, yeah, so they're like always the, going to wall off a, a bunch of seats for media, and so it's going to be in the like the second block. So if you could sit anywhere in the Bill Graham, where would you have wanted to sit? Oh, man. I don't know. That's a great question. I feel like you could be really happy like 
on the floor in the center, like just basically directly behind media. Um, so huge screen, you know, it's like, it's like actually the biggest screen. I think, um, I've never been to those IOs where they had the, the screen that surrounds the entire place, but, um, the whole thing was just, was just a giant screen. So you could see from anywhere. Like the, the screen, the projector where they uh, project the slides, like the, all the slides. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, and then I think, I don't know, we ended up in a balcony on one of the, you know, basically one of the sides. I feel like that could be good. It was great. Yeah. It was, you know, we were, we were pretty early. So we were near the front of the balcony and we just had a view from, you know, like 30 degrees, you know, the right side of the stage and we could see everything. And, but looking around the auditorium, you could see that everyone basically could see everything. So right. there's, that's, that's the, re, you know, what I was saying before, there's no bad seats there. And I think that's a huge win for the conference. All right, so you make it inside, you get your seats, you're sitting there eating your popcorn and drinking your... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, we, that's, what, that, that's what they needed. They need popcorn. Okay, all right. Let's they might actually have some uh, from time to time, too. Nice. Okay, so you're sitting there, and I think, like, they're playing Beats 1, I think. Yeah. Because, like, on the stream, you can hear Beats 1, I think. So you can hear that, too. Yeah, yeah. It was Beats. Oh. Yeah, they had it playing live. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then like um, Zane Lowe, I don't know if he like comes on. Or, you're listening to Beats One. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so you're sitting there, and then I think ten o'clock comes around, and it gets more like dark and intimate, and like, ladies and gentlemen, silence, silence your cell phones, and something like that. And like, what is like, what do you do? And like, what's the feeling? What's the sense in the room? Is it like you're? I mean, it's got to be like you're about to watch like this movie that you've like wanted to watch your whole life or something. Yeah. Or it is for like the last that. year. Yeah, I mean, so I guess depending on how many WWCs you've been to, um, it that excitement's always there. Um, so wait, are you are you kind of alluding to the fact that you might be jaded, bro? Not jaded, but like <laughs> it's like I'm. This is like part four, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the sequel or whatever. But I, I, I always feel uh, butterflies. I mean, it's, right? Because it's like, there's got to be you. Ultimately, you don't know, right? There could be something. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're expecting something surprising for sure. So what's going like? What's going on through your head, or is there like, or are people like whispering, or are people like wishing each other good luck? Like, what are they doing? Yeah, people are like taking photos like crazy, trying to like get an internet connection so they can, <laughs> you know, post on Twitter or whatever. Um, I I mean, it's just it's just this kind of like kind of like subdued frenzy right everyone's calm obviously but wow i like but, that you know what subdued i mean but everyone's excited and, and like trying to trying to get the last minute you know preparation like to because you know like it's like clearing the slate for all this new information to flow in and wow and i don't know that's kind of how i feel okay so the lights go down and um you know tim cook walks on the stage and people clap and what's what's it like to see i guess Looking back, 2013, was Tim Cook the CEO? Or? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so you'd seen Tim Cook as the CEO, but oh, three sure. years later, Apple's a you know similar but different, definitely different company. I mean, they're oh, way yeah. huger, right, three years oh, later. Yeah. What's it like seeing almost kind of like one of the more powerful people in the world? Um, yeah. Like walk out on stage with his like smile and his hand in the air. Like, what's that like? It's... It's cool. So it's it's uh it's inspiring, right? So we, we we're not you know, very few people will have that 
that stature in the world, right? But we can we can sort of like be inspired by people like Tim Cook and um, others, you know. So yeah, even like Craig Federighi, who's who's like you know super funny, but but they they've just become obviously like they have a certain air of celebrity, but also they're on a mission, right? So it's not like they're just like they don't necessarily want uh, attention or they're not out there to gain your respect. You know, they're out there to kind of like evolve this, this like master plan, right? This idea that technology makes your life better. And, and I, you feel that I feel that um, but they're really into that. Um, that means a lot. So one of the things I remember when uh, I would watch any of the keynotes, whether it is like a fall keynote or a dub dub, when I first sort of started getting into this stuff is they would say something, like announce something, um, and everybody would clap. And to me, it seemed kind of like a trivial, a trivial thing. But now that I'm more on the inside, like it makes sense to me. But I feel like yeah. there can be a kind of sense of like drinking the Kool-Aid kind of a thing. Like, is there a feeling like that at all? Or when you're in the room, is it just a pure, like, is it pure? It's a, just a pure excitement. Like we are doing amazing things. And like, yeah, I mean, did, you said, you I was, get what I'm getting at. You, you said I'm maybe a little jaded. I, I, I guess there's this thing like nothing is actually that pure. So I, like, I, I, it's what I mean by that is let me explain. Um, that basically the applause, so maybe half the time they announce something that's cool and people applaud and that's great. And it's something new and, and that's cool. Actually, there's another kind of applause where they announce something that either people have been asking for for years or is like fixing a problem, like a pain that, that has existed for years. Um, and in that sense, you get this, this applause of like, it's almost like you're laughing at the, you know, all the time that you that you <laughs> sank into this this thing like code signing or whatever it is. Yeah. Something they added that you know that like Siri. I know people have been asking for for a long time. Um, you know, Siri APIs, and I think there's there's definitely more than one flavor of applause at WWDC. Right. That's and I think the way you gauge that is how much laughter goes with the applause. So if <laughs> there's a lot of laughter with the applause. It's probably something that they've been talking about for years and like, oh my God, it's finally time or we're finally getting this or, or like, you know, or of course the chuckle of like, oh, Android had that for, you know, like three years ago and, um, you know, not to get political or anything, but, uh, yeah, I, I feel like, like that, that idea of drinking the Kool-Aid is a combination of Apple's going to innovate on a lot of things and they're they're really good at doing that and so you see a new way of doing something that you would have probably not thought of and you have to give like an, an incredible amount of credit and on the flip side apple can't get around to everything or they have to make certain compromises and eventually you get this thing that you feel like they should have done for us three years ago and then and then you have a chuckle so like yeah i don't i don't think you you have there's no such thing as like this pure applause, right? It's it's always mixed with some context. Some, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I really exactly. like that. The different flavors of applause, like <laughs> I, and sometimes it can actually be kind of awkward. But like going from like one side to the other of the spectrum, you have like the applause where it's like, okay, it's good, but we're really just like applauding the effort 
almost like because there are real people who like spent time you know adding this feature and like we're just sort of applauding them like thank you but then there is that that applause which is almost like a relief Mm -hmm. like a release and a relief applause Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. when they said the fix issue thing and everybody's like oh finally and just like <laughs> clapping right and then you have like a swift announcement type of mm. applause where it's a mixture of oh my yeah. gosh what or like confusion and then applause yeah. like what and that, that's really interesting i like that i'm gonna keep that in mind next time that's cool okay so speaking of really like amazing like surprised applause was there anything like that for you during the keynote I'm trying to remember actually so it's been a few weeks the uh the whole messages application i thought you know the, the message integration or extensions right. for messages was was great and and totally new i i hadn't heard any rumors about anything like that i um, read an article where uh-huh. someone was talking about how they should make messages as a platform and mm-hmm. you also had that as a conversation with like Apple Pay and like a Venmo or a Square Cash type of thing. Um, so there was a little bit of talk, but I, I would say nothing that was like really that concrete. So help help me remember, like what were some of the, okay, some so, the other announcements that yeah, were new, totally. really surprised things? Yeah, totally. So you had um, the renaming from uh, OS X to Mac OS. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. I thought what was really interesting was Apple Watch, um, the Breathe app. Like, this is really interesting. You have this, like, guy who came from Nike, I think, who's, like, mm-hmm. this health and fitness expert mm-hmm. talking on stage about this app that, like, helps you breathe, like, uh, reminds you to breathe. This is, like, yeah. really interesting. I think it's showing, like, I where... remember that. was That was cool. Um, and then just the general, like, watch, you know, like, being more, like, quicker. Oh, yeah, watch, the, the watch OS 3 uh, yeah, like being that quicker. Was, that was great. I mean, really, really great. Yeah, and then you have, uh, you know, I, I guess Siri, Siri on the Mac, and then like the more continuity kind of stuff, like the universal clipboard. Uh, for iOS, it was just like you had Siri Kit, you had Map. Um, I'm not sure what they're calling it, Map Kit? Ma- map extensions, maybe? Map extensions, yeah, yeah, which I've tried to find documentation on that, and I haven't seen anything. Interesting. Um, and then you had, yeah, the opening of iMessage, uh, like a message kit or a message as a platform. iMessage Yeah, so apps. the big things, I guess, were from your that list, those are all really cool things. Um, and I was thinking about, like, shock factor. Right. I think the Watch 3 redesign was, it, it was actually, like, surprising the degree to which they seemed to actually address most of the problems with watchOS. So it was kind of like this, it almost, it's almost like people didn't expect them to be able to fix watchOS. And there was like this waning excitement about watchOS because these performance problems, but also the interface and the complexity of actually um, the the mental model of the operating system combined with a tiny little screen. And that that disconnect was really, I think, a liability for watchOS 1 and 2. And for watchOS 3, it seemed like more so than making apps launch more quickly, which obviously that was that was important. I think the way they kind of scrapped things, like removing the the um, the ring of friends from the second oh, right. button, and yeah, like, like actually re- just just rethinking. Yeah, like throwing out glances and just putting it in a, in a sort of a dock switcher kind of kind of presentation, and just rethinking the OS, like and and actually cutting things out of it. Um, that was really impressive, and I was pretty surprised to to you know to see what they had done. 
um, you know, the extent of it. And then definitely the iOS extensions, so including Map and the iMessage thing and Siri, um, there was just a lot happening there, and it was it was uh, I, I impressive. I feel like that's, that's most of them, I'm sure we're missing some, but for me, the bigger one was Swift Playgrounds. Like, to me, we sure. kind of knew, or not knew, but, like, there was a lot of talk, like, hey, give us something where we can write Swift on an iPad. I feel like there was yeah. some talk about that. And I don't know, they just delivered, and they delivered in an interesting way, yeah. you know, because it's like they're really, with version one, they're really focusing on education, which I really like. Yeah. And I think it's a good place to start, and then you can kind of build out and maybe make it more of a pro thing later. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on that? Swift yeah, absolutely. I played with um, with the iPad app actually on vacation. Um, maybe I shouldn't admit that, but anyway. Uh, so 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 we were in Fresno on vacation, and uh, it was like 106 degrees outside, and everyone was relaxed in the house. So I took an opportunity to pull the iPad Pro and um, did some coding in Swift. Uh, so I used one of the blank playgrounds. Awesome. Just to write some code. And I realized, like, oh, you can't, like, tuck away a source file, for example. Um, you know, those kinds of limitations. It's just one, it's just one, you know, canvas of code. And um, that was really interesting. To, so I built out a little um, mini sort of UI view controller that does some, some user interaction. And I was trying to do it in a way that wasn't, um, like, essentially try to have a single file to write code and don't write a massive view controller right so so i'm like you know defining the little types and little protocol extensions so i could compact my auto layout stuff and all write in line so there's no libraries there's no cocoa pods right it's just how can you sort of express the simple idea and it ended up being like 400 lines of code which is kind of a lot for one sort of playground but it did, it did what it was, you know, what it was supposed to do, and it all ran. So that's, that was a lot of fun. Wait, did you say you were doing auto layout on the iPad Pro, like in a Swift Playground? Absolutely. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, you can totally use auto layout. You have to do it programmatically. Right, right. Yeah, so so what I did was, well, I can get into it. It's, it's an aside, but uh, auto layout has visual format. Right, the visual that, format language. Right, and then it has these other more verbose APIs where you pass in like the five parameters. And yeah, the initializer, then there's also like the layout anchors, I think is a newer one. So what I really wanted was a way to do, I want to write one line of code and get all of my constraints for one layer of the view hierarchy. So if, okay. it's, so it's, if it's a view that has like three subviews, I just, want to, I just want to kind of pass it an array of visual formats that share a common metrics and I want to actually call it on the array of views. So if you're familiar with programmatic auto layout, um, basically that might have made sense. Otherwise, sorry. But well, I led uh, a I led a Learn Swift LA, so some of my members out there yeah. should have should have got some of that. But what's cool about that is you can actually you can actually extend the array of views to add uh, essentially a method that takes an array of visual formats and a metrics optional. And then you get back, essentially each time you call visual format, you get an array of constraints. And then you have to do a little bit of... Um, like a flat know, map on them or something? Essentially you join the, arrays of, the array of arrays of constraints into an array of constraints. And that returns all your layout constraints for that layer of the hierarchy. And then you just set the, you know, just add the constraints in one, in one shot. So it just comp compacts that code. 
Yeah, we did that. Actually, Hi Nugent, one of our members, led us through something like that. Yeah. Uh, where he was like, you can do this in even a shorter line. Like, And I think he did that exact thing, where, and then we eventually flat mapped it or something. Yeah, yeah. you have to flat map it. You have to, yeah. Wow. So I, I, you know, I, I have that code. I can, I can. Uh, you should. It over. It's, it's, it's actually like maybe twenty lines of code to do all that, and it's, it's really cool. You, you should, man. That sounds awesome. I mean, I'm surprised you're doing this kind of stuff in a in a Swift playground because, like, I was playing around with a little bit. I was trying out the templates that they have, mm-hmm. um, and, but then I was like, okay, let me just try to write some code from scratch. And I was trying to not use the keyboard, like just use the toolbar, like the yeah. little, you know what I mean, to try to. I don't know, just to do that. Yep. And I don't know, I did, definitely didn't take it as far as you. That's, But also, I was okay, on an so iPad a couple Mini. Disclaimers. You're on an iPad Pro. So. I had an iPad Pro. I had an external Bluetooth keyboard. Okay. And I just put the Pro on a little, uh, just on its own little kickstand. So I don't use the one where the keyboard's built in because I right. don't want to weigh down the device. Okay. But that external keyboard's nice because, you, you know, for me, my muscle memory is, is like, pretty much tied to the keyboard this is like a particular keyboard you like no it's just a yeah i mean i mean actually oh, i, I, even I know love what you it, mean but it's just a bluetooth external keyboard it's one of these logitechs where you can switch between a, a like a real and... keyboard not like one of these smart like kind of these like smaller keyboard kind of things i see what right. you mean right 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 and physical keys i mean I, I i think the real benefit to the external keyboard is just being able to see more code on the screen I, if it were typing on screen i you know i'm sure it would be okay but yeah, I'm, I'm. Yeah, no, that's I, a good point. Yeah, I, I like a keyboard when I'm programming. I, that's that's one of those things that I think is great that the iPad has this, and I do expect people will learn, um, you know, Swift and other things probably programming concepts on uh, in playgrounds. And so if you can avoid typing and the way they did it with the autocomplete and that that stuff, actually works pretty well. And you and I was using it when I could. Um, but there's definitely times when if you're, if you have to really type, you know, I, I like to type on a keyboard. Okay. So a couple things, uh, you said you can only have, like, there's no source files or something like that. I think what you could do is create your own Swift playground in, I'm not sure how, like the author, if that's in Xcode. In Xcode, you can create a playground with sources and resources. And then maybe, yeah. And then maybe you use that as your like template and then you have like one, sort of one file that's like accessing the sources but i guess that's but you couldn't of... edit your you couldn't edit those sources probably i'm pretty okay. certain you couldn't edit. no you're probably yeah. right yeah and i think i've there's there's some interesting education stuff if there's a de- developer session that talks about authoring swift playgrounds it's really interesting so it talks a little bit about that but yeah i was that... in that session at oh, okay. WBC. yeah that yeah was so cool you're session. familiar yeah, it's really interesting stuff there. Um, so I want to get your thoughts on that then. Oh, um, cool. So in any case, it sounds very impressive that you were able to do that on a Swift Playground. I want to see that. Um, so well, hopefully we can get that. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I can get a link um, to that. But sure. So yeah, what is your thought? It's version one. So look, it could have done this. It could have done that. But fine. You know, We know eventually it will get somewhere else. But what it is now, what are your thoughts? Um, and Apple is sort of... They are pushing it or marketing it as this education thing. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And I mean, I, yeah. So, what are your thoughts? It, I think it's a it's just a great way to learn things. So, you know, you want to learn visually, you want to learn interactively. It has all of those things. Um, has sort of this instant feedback um, as you're doing your code. You can execute. Um, you do press a button to run the code, which is, I guess, good because. You don't want to get into that thing where it's waiting to compile and 
Um, like in the Mac OS Swift playgrounds, yeah, like, it's on like the constantly Mac, it's, running and it's, it's like continuously like compiling bits as you're typing, and, and then you have to the, like quit Xcode because it always like hangs up. Yeah, there's that. I, I think <laughs> on the iPad, it's it's probably just better not to tax the um, limited CPU and battery you know, and battery you know, by comparison. I think it's a good model. It, it works really well. Um, you know, the you can like auto rotate. You get weird shapes in the in the resulting view. So you. On an iPad Pro, you can make a view that's like super skinny and super tall if you auto rotate in the playground. Um, but that actually could be interesting. Uh, I think a way to look at like a table view controller and see like you know fifteen cells. It'd be interesting to you know even tall ones, right? Um, interesting. To debug that or, or use it. But but really in the normal mode, it's kind of landscape. You see something that's about the size of an iPad Mini next to some code that's about the size of an iPad mini and, and you can you can kind of construct things and um, the one thing about the educational case is where you really build out like in the environment something you know like there's a lot of art resources and so there is that gap I think where if you as an education tool probably it's going to be like really difficult to build out an experience that's anything close to this demo that they had right because it's basically you're like building a game and then within the game you're implementing like programming sequences right so you're saying okay here's this like robust application and it's just waiting for these you know these five or ten high level commands to get executed right so i do think that it's there might be a challenge there for an educator who's not an, a software engineer to construct something as compelling. Right. So hopefully there's going to be sort of a market for educational content by, you know, more experienced software engineers to be able to create something that, you know, a, a teacher can understand, a beginner can learn, and it has a fairly rich sort of user, you know, like a visual experience that that's more than meets the eye, right? It, otherwise you get a blank white screen. You're like, what do I do? And you're like, oh, right. set the background color. Great. It turned red. Um, that kind of thing is great. And so, you know, but it's, it may not be enough to like push some people over the edge to like really want to do it. Right. I feel like this has happened before, for instance, with like iBook author, yep. I think it's called. So Apple creates these amazing tools and says like, Hey, here, this is what we think you could do with it and should do with it. And it'll be amazing. But then the incentives are not quite like aligned. And yeah. so you could create this really interactive educational book for the iPad, but maybe there's just no incentive. There's no money in it or something like that. And well, I, there's was, maybe no means of distrib distributing it where it can't be copied or, you know, I, I don't know if they're addressing that. Um, you could, I could see a, I could definitely see a world where you had educational titles that target the playground app. But as far as I know, they didn't announce any sort of like app store for playgrounds. Right. So, well, they haven't. They they said you can make your own, but they haven't said how to distribute. You're totally right. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's going to be something when it's you know not beta anymore. I, don't I know. mean, they, you could totally. I I could see it where you could distribute something possibly internally. The engine needs some sort of license key. I maybe that could be a thing. I don't know. I I think it's. You're right. It's not. There's no clear way to get there. And I do think this is a challenge for playgrounds. Like I'm so excited as an engineer, but I'm not going to choose the playground over Xcode as a real working environment. But it's it is um, clearly capable of 
you know, building complex things. Um, but, you know, some of those key things would be missing, obviously. This is an Xcode for iPad. It's Playgrounds for iPad. So it sounds like there's some questions, but what do you? What would you say? Um, yay, nay, it's looking good in the future or oh, yeah, too yeah, early yeah. to tell? For no, no, it's just a matter of time, right? So the iPad is clearly, um, uh, if not the future, it's definitely part of the future of computing, right? So uh, the idea is you have this computer with all these different moving parts and you start stripping away the moving parts and get to the essential thing. And essentially, it's there's a display, there's a way to provide input, and with those two things, you can kind of create anything you can visualize in, within the context of the display or even maybe outside. Uh, for example, uh, look at Pokemon Go or other virtual or augmented reality games, and suddenly the device is actually just a window to the world, which is crazy, right? But the idea that you have a screen and on that screen you can create more things for that screen I feel is inevitable um, I, I have you had a chance to see any um, younger people play with it for instance as soon as it was released I got it on this iPad mini of mine because I knew I was going to my brother's wedding um, and I would see uh, my uh, younger brother-in-law or soon-to-be brother-in-law uh, and he, he's really interested in programming and I brought it and he played with it and he just immediately was just consumed by it. Yeah. And so I wonder, have you had a chance to see anything like that or what's your sense? I, like I, can, be I can understand people getting really excited if they have even a little bit of understanding of what programming is or not necessarily I understand Swift, but Swift really split the difference between the sort of the, um, programming sort of legacy of Objective-C and, and that whole world of object-oriented development and Cocoa APIs and bridge that with like accessible common syntax and things that people right. look at, they, they feel like they can read. And so you put those together, you get a clear readable language with a really simple tool and you can see the output immediately. And it's just, it suddenly becomes, there's like this, this key moment where it just, you, you know, you, you, you can, you feel like you can do everything that you might want to do and then you're empowered and then after that it's just a matter of do I have time to work with this and and obviously there's like if I so I, I have so by the way let me stop I haven't seen anyone else sit down and use it um, <laughs> like out in the wild like in the wild like I actually I did have a coworker show me something that they built in playgrounds and they were using a mini and that was cool um, but I, I do want to cite that my two kids take so naturally to the touchscreen uh, UI paradigm. Like they just immediately get it. Obviously from a very early age, they could kind of move stuff around on the screen. Right. Uh, where it's just like a simple, like a cute, um, you know, character and they can just drag it around and make noises and stuff. Or to some of the more advanced things, like if you look at, you know, Toka Studios, they make games for kids and my kids love these, these, uh, these games. They're kind of more like toys, their experiences. And so you just kind of get into manipulating things by touch and but there is also like this overlay of solving problems right so in one of them you have to figure out like you know put a bunch of ingredients together in a pan and then serve it to a monster and <laughs> it's that kind of thing i think playgrounds is just one step away right it feels like a game but you're learning something and you're you're just applying you know you're building these conceptual models and they and they kind of like you know appear on the screen and yeah. you can interact with them. That's that's amazing. 
Yeah, and you mentioned the word accessible, and I, I really like that. So a lot of what I do with my meetup and the podcast is try to make this idea of an iOS developer more accessible to more people. Um, because when I first started out, it felt like, you know, I was kind of on the outside looking in, and it was this really cool club that I wanted to be a part of. And so I feel like Swift Playgrounds does that. And I also feel I get a sense from Apple that they're focused on that way more than they might have thought they were before. So for instance, you mentioned um, going from Objective-C to Swift and like Swift is more accessible. Like you can listen to a WWDC developer session. I think it was one of the um, UI view animation sessions. Mm -hmm. Um, Can't remember the guy's name, but he literally says that there was a running bet in the UI kit, you know, team of Mm. who could come up with the longest naming API. And right. And so I think they don't realize it, but what that does in that mentality, it makes it even harder for people to um, join, to join, to join the club. But I don't think they realize that. And then you go to Swift and it's just that much more accessible. And I don't know if Apple realizes it, but it seems to me and I want to know if you have the sense of, of that, like just sitting in the room, that they are making their our intent, their their intention is to make it more accessible. I mean, you have that video, um, the developer video at the beginning, where at the end you have this like um, I don't know, maybe forty or fifty year old black lady saying like, "I'm gonna be this like hotshot senior iOS developer, and that I'm just gonna code, moment. boom, bang, bang." That was a great moment, right? And yeah. so, and that makes me feel so great and so hopeful and so um i don't know did you get anything like that did you get a sense at all because like and this leads into something i want to talk about which is like the grand renaming and some of the api changes well did you get a sense of that at all yeah i think so there's a few things there one is that in in terms of the the verbose names in objective c um you know the the coco naming conventions for objective c were um sort of you know they were they're encouraging people to be clear so so it's kind of like the pendulum swings the other way so basically what they were coming from was were like okay there's you know maybe in java or other languages you know not trying to pick on java but you know it would be very common to have variables that weren't even a complete word in the english language much less more than one word in the english language just like c well, it could be or a letter, a. or it could be like str instead of string, or right, right. or whatever. Like just or an LBL example of, for label. Exactly, like convoluting or compacting, and and there was a sense of you know typing an extra few letters was was like detrimental to the program in some way, which of course it's not. Um, it's the opposite, right? It's less maintainable in the future. It's less readable, less clear. Um, I think Objective-C was like, we're going to do this thing where we're, we want to really focus on natural language. And they have the syn- syntax of named arguments. But the reason that I think the first, because the first argument label is part of the method name in Objective-C, so, you're, so you get the long part of the selector, and what is left of the first colon is both the method you're naming, like the thing you're doing, and what you're doing it with, the first argument, right? So right, the let's first give an part, example. I know what you're so, talking about, but let's give an example. Like so, view controller did finish or something, right? Like Sure, or, or actually I mentioned earlier, like string by appending string, okay. right? So appending string by appending is the thing you're doing. String, the last uh, occurrence of string, is the thing you're passing in. 
And then if that had a second argument, the second argument probably wouldn't have a really long name. If you look at most methods, the first argument or the first part of it is what ends up being really long. And the reason is it's encoding two things, what you're doing and what you're using or what you're doing it with, right? And it, also maybe what you're getting back, like isn't, aren't you kind of getting back a string or is it actually so that's operating actually a great on the string? Point. You're absolutely right. So if you look at how you write Objective-C, the return type is at the beginning of the method. So if you're returning a string, you might be temp tempted to actually also include the return type. So actually up to three things that could be part of that. So string by appending string is actually three things, right? It's the return type, what it's you're the doing. action, and it's the first argument. In that case, there's only one argument. And then in the method, in the argument, like kind of signature, or part of where the arguments are, then it'll say string again. And then it'll say its type, like it's, it'll say its internal name. Then it'll say its type, which is string. And then right. it'll say, you know, um, with characters or by omitting or sure. whatever it is, by trimming. Exactly. If, if it has another part. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you end up with something string by appending string, string, string. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Now, in theory, if you look at the anatomy of or the syntax of a Swift sort of method name, you still have all of that, but it's just broken up into words, right? So instead of concatenating string, the return type, by appending the action, string, the first argument, now you have appending, which is the name of the function, what you're doing. The return type is not at the beginning. It's also redundant, so you don't need to re repeat it in the name. Right. And then the first argument is string colon. Now that's inside of the method. And if you had more arguments, it, they would be balanced. And all the arguments would be treated the same way. So, uh, And then the, finally, the return type is just the return type. And you already know the type. Right. It's, it's right there to read. Right. So you basically eliminate the redundancy, which never helped. Um, like the people see Objective-C as verbose. I think there's two reasons. One is you end up with more redundancy in the code because you're repeating the types a lot. And the other is you have these method names that are concatenating different parts of that method into what should be a user sort of readable English thing. And I always saw it that way because it was better than the alternative of not having named arguments. But you could definitely get longer, um, you know, you just, you're just going to end up with longer method names if you, if you are carrying that much in the first part of the name. Okay, so one, so the one thing that it sounds like you're kind of getting at is it was a pendulum swing of something, whatever was before Objective C, moving to um, more clarity from conciseness, and then now the pendulum's kind of swinging away from Objective C back towards, um, yeah, you know, maybe more so concise, but maybe also more clear. That tells the story. I think it's it's we went from terseness being the standard to verbosity being the standard, and then settling in the middle. And, and favoring, and I love how they put this, is favoring clarity. Right. Clarity so, at the point of use. At the point of use. Yeah, the, actually, thank you. So that's even more uh, I specific. I love that. Yeah, because now when you read the method declaration, it may feel a little bit, uh, in some cases, maybe verbose, but it, it, if it cleans up at the point of use, reads more, um, you know, just more clearly, it's more grokkable. I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm still I'm still moving towards that. Like, when do you actually use a name argument versus the underscore? And because there's examples of both still in the grand renaming version of Coco, and so I, I think that's a maybe a discussion for another day. But I think that there's some interesting things to think about um, how we name our methods, and we'll be thinking about that for a long time. 
Okay, so kind of getting at maybe a second point then, was there another kind of sense in the room or feeling that, that you were getting from the people on stage or just the feeling in the room or the people that you were talking to that there is this movement towards making, becoming, being an Apple developer sort of more accessible? And I don't know, actually, and what are your thoughts on that? Like, yeah, I, I mean, almost feel like maybe some people might think like they kind of get scared or like kind of protective. Maybe well, I'm going to say this. I, I could be totally wrong about this, but I feel like if you looked at all the big developer communities um, and measured the ratio of computer scientists to sort of self-taught bootstrap type engineers, um, I feel like it's probably fairly high in the Apple community. Um, Meaning there's more self-taught versus computer science? I think so. I could be wrong, but I feel like more of the Java world is CS. Um, there's definitely like people coming into like Microsoft technologies coming from CS. I mean, I, I, I'm sure I'm wrong about this. I, I bet it's distributed fairly evenly, but I have a sense. I, I mean, mainly because I didn't come from a CS background but taught myself all of this stuff. And a lot of that was, you know, how accessible could it be? I think the benefit for me was just experience in general programming. Um, so, you know, my background was PHP and web development, and it was a big change to get into Objective-C, but a lot of that was super welcome because I realized some of the problems of, you know, writing, uh, you know, PHP or, or JavaScript, is like kind of like this typeless, non-interpreted you know interpreted language, um, and, you know, experience into a compiled language experience. And for me, that's kind of, Objective-C was my first compiled language. So that was a big transformation. And so a lot of what I, the reason I love Objective-C is I happen to love the compiler in general, like as a concept. So when I, when I see something like Swift, I think, oh wow, actually you can still have a compiler, but the language can also be really easy to learn and, and easier to read and in some ways more powerful, right? In many ways. And, and there's classes of bugs that can't exist because it's a little more opinionated about safety, but it's also very flexible about style and how you put things together. If it's object-oriented, functional, or, you know, Swifty, protocol-oriented kind of thing, you know, it, it really, it's interesting. Like, Swift is very opinionated, but it's, like, strongly opinionated that it should be a hybrid language. And that's a very interesting position to take because it's, like, it's right at the center um, you know, it's like if you meet someone and they call themselves a centrist, um, you know, it's, it's, you might think that they're neutral, but actually that might be a very strong opinion. I have um, a couple, I have a couple points there. Uh, one is I think it kind of makes sense that like, I'm not, I'm not surprised that, that you have that sense, that feeling that there are more non-traditional, um, you know, developers as iOS developers versus yeah, more like, anecdotal, yeah. Um, but but no, I think that's not surprising because the iPhone touches the whole world, mm -hmm. right? Versus like a computer and maybe just mm -hmm. a web browser um, doesn't, you know, the, the number of people that have a, a house like a desktop computer is smaller than the number of people that have like a mobile mobile device, right? So because it touches more people, you're gonna have a wider diversity, you know, a di more diverse population of like the developer base. That's kind of my feeling. That's it's true, but but think about the, the the proportion of those people that were developers already, because mm. that's actually a big difference. Now you're attracting people that aren't developers, right? 
and that's that's much more difficult than getting someone who knows one language to learn a new language or or has worked on one platform to work on this new platform. Um, so so the second thing though I wanted to say is you mentioned the compiler. Yep. And I'm trying I I'm trying to remember that the compiler is actually our friend and what I like about Swift mm -hmm. Playgrounds to go back to it is like the compiler is kind of more cute and kind of like more <laughs> friendly, right? Yeah. Whereas the compiler in Xcode it's like red or like and it's like this kind of cr like scary red or it's like this yellow and these the um the warnings are so cryptic although they're getting better right and i guess it's all going to say what if we th start thinking about giving the compiler like more of a presence more of a character as of like this thing that really is there to help you because my feeling is it really does like if you listen mm -hmm. to the compiler and try to understand what it's saying it's really leading you um, to writing more correct code. Like if you're constantly fighting the compiler, you're probably not doing it right, right? Yep. And so uh, that's just sort of something I thought of while you were talking about the compiler. Yeah, I think a lot of effort goes into catching more edge cases and making errors more um, sort of better explain what you need to do to fix them rather than just telling you what, the, what happened, right? So it's like what happened is great, but how can I fix it is really what we want, right? So that's... Right. That is the, if you think about it, a compiler engineer, and and this is their user interface. It's it's the feedback you get from you know from when you run it. You know what I mean. So like if you think about it from a UX perspective, they don't have a sort of a visual UI, right? But they do have this opportunity to communicate back to the user, and how they do that determines, I think, the the success or failure of that particular um, part of the system. So I think better better feedback is essential, and I'll tell you that in on the iPad um, app, uh, you get that for the most part. However, there are you know maybe I was trying to do too much with it actually, but there are scenarios where if it actually crashes, um, you may you might not get any indication of where that happened. So it might I just say there's this. an error, you know, look for mistakes, and there's there's actually an error message like that. Um, and that's the kind of thing that could really just stop a beginner in their tracks. Right, which I'm sure they'll improve on. Do you? Do I, I agree. They will definitely improve on this. Do you feel like the compiler has been improving, like from your experience, you know, coming from Objective-C and moving to Swift, do you feel like that, that is improving just in general? Well... And, and there's room to improve? Yeah, I'm not an expert on compilers. I, I, I definitely feel like it's improved. I, I, I feel like it's, it's doing, you know, what it says on the tin uh, for the most part. I think... Swift had the interesting challenge of um, the type inference overhead. So there's a lot of like differences where Swift can't necessarily go as fast because it's trying to make more guarantees. It's actually taking on a lot more responsibility than the Objective-C compiler does. Um, of course, they're using the same underlying um, technology with LLVM and, and a lot of the Objective-C features were developed in the, you know, to support Swift and all that. So these are, these are interrelated, but um, yeah, you read about, you know, situations where it could take, you know, like a few seconds to do something that should be like, you know, instantaneous um, in the Swift compiler. And I'm sure those things are getting improved um, every single release of Xcode. Um, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally happy with it. I, I haven't hit a situation where the Swift compiler got in my way so much. Um, but yeah, we're in a beta period with Xcode 8. So obviously there's still some kinks in there and they're getting worked out and so you know i'm generally pretty patient with stuff like that uh, of course i'm not using it for like you know my production work so 
um, yeah, I look forward to when it's when it's finalized and and we'll see like the latest and greatest. But you know, so far so good, and I think it's it's just been moving you know um, really quickly towards something even better. So we are well um, at the end of the episode, but there's a couple things I wanted to talk about uh, really quick because uh, I want to get your perspective. Sure. So there were some new uh, API like sort of uh, changes, right? They're more right. Swifty. So you have Grand Central Dispatch, mm -hmm. um, you know, Dispatch Queue dot, mm -hmm. you know, Main Queue, uh, however, it, what you know, or Background Queue. I'm not exactly sure. Dot Async, right? It's like more right, right. The wrappers, yep. Right, mm -hmm. and then you have um, UIV Property Animator, which is actually like a new object, but it's I feel like it's just also a more Swifty way because now you have an object versus like just operating on like the UI view class for for animations. Yes. Um, and I think I didn't look at NSURL session, but I think they maybe changed NSURL session a little bit too. I'm not sure. Ist or ist or ist or ist or ist or are there anything and I think graphic a uh, core graphics also. Um, mm -hmm. are there any else out there? Um, any kind of APIs that kind of could get a Swifty remake. Uh, for instance, uh, um, auto layout like NS layout constraint. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything else out there? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I'm not aware. You mentioned a lot of them right there. Um, I'm not aware of other ones. I think like the one of the things that I think interesting with grand renaming also is how they ported over like URL, like NSURL is now a struct in Swift 3. Oh, yeah, right? so, totally. Like, so a lot of that was... And um, like date. Exactly. So it makes a lot of sense to like really think about what you mean by... You know, what is the intention of each of these types? And sort of how is their life cycle. So if, if a URL is URL is URL, we don't really need to think of it as a class anymore, right? But maybe for an object like, I don't know, maybe NS Calendar, I'm just thinking, but I'm not sure. But essentially, um, I believe that has some behaviors that, that might have to like react to system changes and other things. And so there's more of this sense of like, it's gonna be a class and it might have a bit of a life cycle um, based on events in the system and such. So. Um, yeah, so that's an area that, you know, uh, I think is important, not just renaming things, but also thinking about the struct uh, versus class uh, consideration and when to, you know, why are these APIs now structs and why are these other ones not? And I think that's, you know, that's telling you a lot about how they think about these objects and what their roles are. But for dispatch, I think that's uh, my favorite example, just because you know, it really was this kind of raw C interface for so long and, and we just put up with it. Like, I guess it, it made things so easy that we didn't care if it didn't look good or read well. Um, and I think just cleaning it up is a great thing to do and using, you know, having like an object oriented interface um, just makes things uh, just easier to think about and understand kind of, um, you know, the mental model. So, you know, it, Definitely great improvements, welcome improvements to the language or to the platform. And, um, you know, I think the other thing that's really interesting there is uh, setting it up so that you can run Swift on Linux, like server-side Swift, and how these things get imported into the new foundation. And you have, like, uh, essentially on an, in an environment where it's not so easy to switch maybe between the C syntax and, and the, uh, and the um, Swift. Um, I think it's really nice to have to have those nicer, newer, shiny, um, you know, sugary APIs for things like dispatch and other things. 
Totally agreed. And you mentioned the server-side Swift. I thought it was pretty interesting that they had uh, someone from IBM on stage talking about it. I don't know if you went to that session, but I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I, I, I may not have made that session. I'll definitely watch that one. Um, yeah, I don't know if I watched the whole thing, but basically you had like somebody from IBM. Kind yeah, of talking I've seen a couple process. Yeah, I've seen a couple of videos by IBM about it, and and they're talking about you know deploying to their to their cloud and and you know the some of the web tools they have the sand the um, the playground the sandbox in on online that you can use um, that works pretty well. Um, IBM's definitely really excited. You know, they've put a lot of resources into open source Swift, and I think it's great. Um, yeah, I, I I think there's a lot more there. Uh, to be determined, it's much less clear how that's going to end up. Like, what is the what is the primary sort of uh, framework for building web applications in Swift or APIs in Swift? And um, I'm really excited about that. Uh, I do think it's a little young for that, but it's definitely we'll see some some great things coming up. You know, this next you know 15 months or so uh, from Swift three to Swift four. And Swift Package Manager will start using at some point um, professionally. I mean, we in the sense of the community, and it's it's going to be um, interesting to see how you know people continue to use Cocoa Pods versus you know transition to the Package Manager or what happens to Carthage, and maybe they all have a place. Maybe they they you know they get a little smaller, um, but yeah, tons of cool things happening, and Apple's taking responsibility for things like this that they've traditionally left for third parties to think about. And um, it's encouraging. Hopefully they do it in a way where, um, you know, we still have flexibility and options. Like one thing that was, you know, came out of WWC that wasn't so great was all the Xcode plugins. Um, right. You know, of all the Xcode plugins, you could probably only run the ones that operate on source code going forward. Like in the text editor. Yeah, so we editor. lost a lot of really cool things, some of which I used, but, um, you know, I, I I try to keep it pretty stock so I don't get too reliant on that kind of tooling personally. Like I'd rather use a native Xcode for the most part. Um, but yeah, there's a few things that I do use in Alcatraz and it'll be a little sad to see that go away. Um, but hopefully we'll get something to replace it that's better, that's also secure. Um, and so we'll see. I, I, that's one of those wait and see things for next year. So speaking of next year, uh, last question, kind of a two-parter. Why should someone go to DubDub or if they're thinking about going, sort of like when is a good time to go? Um, like when I just, you know, was starting out, it never really occurred to me that I should go. And then like, you know, a week before I think that the tickets were going to like go on sale. I was like, why am I thinking I shouldn't go? Like this is for me. I should yeah. totally go. Like why should someone go? When is sort of ready? And then um, how... Like, how should someone get the most out of DubDub? Yeah, I think the answer is labs. Like, for as far as getting the most out of it, you know, spend time in the labs. Like, find Apple engineers, uh, bring questions, and you start asking questions, but it'll lead to, like, a broader discussion, and you can ask other questions that came out of that, or they say something, and that reminds you, oh, yeah, you know, like, so what about this other scenario? And they're so patient, and they'll spend time with you, and and just teach you things and talk about things and get feedback, which is cool because I think they probably learn a lot at, at WWDC from the attendees and that I'm, I imagine will have an influence on kind of how they proceed with you know, finalizing the release during the next three, four months, right? So so that's that's always like 
um, a great thing to do. Go for lab. So everybody has access to the sessions, um, but the sessions are exciting. Like you go in person, um, you have the opportunity to walk up and talk to the presenter afterwards. You have the, um, you know, the, the people around that you can talk to, ask questions, or just share your opinions about what they just talked about. Um, and then I think the other thing is just immersion, right? So you go to WWC and for one week, you're only going to think about learning new things and you're going to do that like essentially every hour of that day for five days or four days. Um, it is, it is definitely, um, the most dense sort of week of education you'll, you'll ever have. Um, of course you can go back, you can watch the videos and so. I encourage people to, if they go, they should try to go. They should definitely attend the labs with questions. That's the best. That's the best case scenario. Um, and you'll bump into people. You know, like like if you use Fastlane, you know, the author of Fastlane is probably sitting, you know, in the tools area talking to people about it. Um, that kind of thing is also like you know pretty special. You don't you don't see these people except online, um, and then suddenly there they are, and and you can chat with them about you know everything like technical or just you know talk about their experience in san francisco so it's it's definitely worth it the parties are a lot of fun um you know hanging out you know drinking random you know mai tais or whatever <laughs> um so whatever then, the drink is and whatnot so then on that note like that's sort of the value you can get out of it and that's sort of how to get the value out of it when would you say someone is ready to take advantage of that opportunity? Like, when is a good time um, for someone to go? Uh, let's say they're just starting out, or they've been programming for six months or for yeah. a year. Like, whatever it is, when do you think it's worth spending? You know, all this money. Um, well, I guess it depends on like. If yeah, can, that's right? it's it's expensive, right? So the hotel can be expensive, the flights can be expensive, especially for international, um, you know, traveling developers like that's that's a huge commitment um i think it's it's definitely worth it but i also would say you know yeah i, I would i would think about spending that much money for something that you can get you know the information for free um with a little bit of effort you can learn all these things yourself um i i think it it makes i don't know i guess one of the things is if you work someplace where they might, you know, pay you to go to WWC or, or, or right, like, you or know, pay for you, pay you know, for the trip, essentially. Right. Um, obviously, that's a huge, you know, win because they're getting, you know, an engineer who's who's immersed, who's committed, who's, who's really excited about this stuff. Um, you know, it builds like great sort of um, respect for the employee and the employer. Right, and you want to come back and deliver like you know new apps, new features based on what you learned, and and so I think that's that's like a great scenario. Probably the best case scenario is uh, if if you're if if you can go you know as as representing the company you work for is always really nice. Um, but you know the first couple times I went, I, I went on my own, and I'm lucky because LA is close to San Francisco, and it's it's fairly inexpensive to get there. Um, I didn't always get a hotel. You can, you know, obviously there's Airbnb, but there's also, um, you know, friends. If you have friends in the area, just, you know, just, you know, ask them to, if you can couch surf for a week and, and if it's, if it's a, a good situation and that works for everyone, you save a lot of money. Um, the ticket is obviously the one thing you just have to, you have to do. And it's worth mentioning, you could go to San Francisco and get a lot out of 
AltConf and Layers and the other conferences that are around, and there's such a density of developers all around the city, around Moscone, um, that it that it's still a really cool thing to do is just go and enjoy um, that week in San Francisco is unique, right? To to for an Apple developer, um, you know, it's 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 definitely action packed and there's a lot going on. So yeah, all around it's it's great if you can do it if you. Um, if you get the employer um, sponsorship, that's that's the best case scenario. Right on. All right, cool. Well, Garo, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, we talked about uh, you know a lot of Swift stuff. We talked about a little bit of like history with uh, WWDC. We talked about Swift playgrounds. We talked about you know being an Apple developer becoming more accessible. Um, yeah, we talked about a lot of cool yeah. stuff. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all that uh, with us. And uh, yeah, I look forward to talking to you again in the oh, future. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Garrett. And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends. Mm-hmm.